0: Welcome to the Innovation Game, a podcast by the IP law firm, Potter Clarkson. My name's Rich Wells. I'm a patent attorney in the biotech department and I'm joined by Sarah Holland, also a patent attorney in biotech. And we're going to be talking about why IP is important for scientist founders. So Sarah, first off, what would you say a scientist founder is?
1: So I think especially in uh, fields such as biotech, synthetic biology, sustainability, there's lots of scientists, so academics, and they've got really good ideas and they want to set up their own companies. And I think historically the scientists have moved to a more just science world, really. But now we're seeing a lot of the scientists actually wanting to run and continue running their companies. And I think a key part of this is understanding a bit about IP because we need, you know, scientists founders need IP to secure funding. They need to protect their invention. But I know that a lot. Well, the vast majority of academics don't know anything about IP. So if I just talk a little bit about, about my background, I did a PhD in molecular biology on yeast, looking at artificial chromosomes, and then I did seven or eight years postdoc, again using yeast, to look at things like molecular um, molecular biology, metal toxicity, and in all those. so, I, so basically, I left the university when I was thirty three. And in all that time, nobody ever mentioned IP. Nobody ever thought, thought or suggested to me about commercializing anything. It's just, it's just not in the culture. And I know there are, there's the odd academic who's very commercially minded, but that's not, not very common. There are people within universities who are trying to educate academics, but I think most of them just don't think it applies to them. But I think most people go into research because they want to make a difference, whether that's. I don't know, a new therapeutics. They want want to go and cure cancer. They want to help with um, climate change. And I know, because I was there, you think by publishing your research in a journal, somebody's going to pick up that research and run with it, turn your idea into a real-world product and save the world. But the thing that's missing there is the fact that because you've published that research, it's probably very unlikely you're going to get any uh, protectable IP publishing research will stop you getting a patent and because you haven't got a patent people aren't going to invest in that business because they're not going to you won't have the right then to stop other people copying you you know years later once you've spent years developing your product millions of pounds getting it to market if somebody can then just oh I'm going to copy that idea then you know investors don't like that so they're going to want to see some some IP or at least some IP strategies So you need to know about IP if you're going to successfully run your business.
0: Now, that makes sense. I imagine with um, these scientist founders, they start out and it's a whole new world to them, isn't it? Yeah. They'll have so many different things for you, for a better word, to get their head around. You know, will they need lab pre- premises? You know, what's yeah. the IP situation? How to get, in, you know, investors interested? And yeah. it's quite a challenge for these, you know, Multi-talented. Well, they have to be individuals yeah, to kind yeah. of to, to make sure they're getting the right advice at the right stage and not misstepping. And I, I suppose that's why I say like a, a minimum amount of IP education is is useful. But I suppose it just gets them to the level where they know what questions they should be should be asking and and yeah. and to 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 avoid the missteps as you said earlier of say publishing publishing too early, which we you know we we can we can get on maybe talk about a yeah. bit more detail later um,
1: yeah and it's, think, it's not it's not just the like the hats that we see that the founders have to wear like the IP and the legal side it's they've got to know about HR they've got to know about yeah. accountancy it's all sort of marketing regulations it's so many things so you know it's not a, it's not an easy job but
0: no you no. need to spend a
1: little bit of time thinking about their IP
0: yeah no that makes sense no definitely and I think one thing that I often find sort of dealing with with clients like this that they're, they're always super sharp individuals and they, they 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 kind of well, they pick up things so quickly, but it's they're, they're, there's often kind of common misconceptions that they come to the table with in relation to ip what it means for them how it can work for them or against them in their, yeah. their new company their new venture you you know what, what's an example that you've come across of say say a common misconception that sort of an, a, a scientist founder would 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 have
1: yeah so one that times when i've seen when i've seen um companies pitching and just in general conversations with them and it's, it's a common one that lots of people struggle with it's the difference between Patentability, so whether something you can get a patent to protect your invention and freedom to operate. Yes. So they yeah. both involve patents, but they're looking at the different side angles of patents. So a patent, if you get a granted patent, it gives you a right to stop people doing whatever falls within the scope of your patent. So it's like it's like building a fence around your garden. That is yours. You can do that, and you can stop people. No, sorry, you can't necessarily do yeah. that, but you can stop people coming into your garden. Yes, they're not allowed to come into your garden, but your next door neighbour might have got another pattern. Which um, I don't know if this analogy is going to work now or not, but no, it, they they, they kind of um, build their fence around their their protected space, which might involve some of your. It might overlap with your space, so going with a garden analogy, your your neighbour might have got the right to put their um, fence into your garden a bit. So if you think about it, you've got all these patents and some of they all overlap. So although although you've got the right to stop people doing what you've got protected, you might not be able to do that yourself because your competitor might have got protection that runs into your space. So this is what this is the freedom property issue. So if you're if as a company you're wanting to do a certain act, make a product, run a service, you need to check to see if there are other people out there who've got patents that will prevent you from doing that or patents that you would infringe if you do your act and then it's up to you to make a commercial decision whether you decide to kind of ignore those patents and go ahead with your act knowing that you're going to infringe them but weighing up the likelihood of them actually coming after you versus trying to seek a license so that's freedom property and then patentability. to get a patent your invention needs to be new and inventive so with that we're looking for We're judging your invention, or the patent examiner, will judge your invention versus anything that's been made public before you filed your application. So, the requirements for you to get a patent are one thing, and then whether you've got freedom to operate in view of other people's patents are a different thing, and you have to look at documents differently.
0: I think that yeah, that that makes sense to me. I think particularly what you're saying earlier about, and I I think the garden fence analogy was pretty good actually, but um, that. Often individuals think that if they can get a granted patent, so that's the patentability point, whether their their invention is worthy of being granted a patent, will provide them with a a kind of a a, a shield, as it were, to stop other people alleging that what they're doing infringes another person, a third party's patent other type of intellectual property but yeah it, it just doesn't the way that i view patents it's it's a sword and not a shield and you kind of need to get both those things not not necessarily covered off but just an understanding of 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 what you have as an entity and what your risks are um particularly i suppose when you're when you're talking to investors because the investors will need to know well if they invest in you have you got Patent protection or the likelihood of getting patent protection and does that mean that their investment is as safe as it can be from others copying and in relation to the free to operate point you know has this been considered at all and what potential risks or actual risks are there for someone else coming along and and saying well you can't do what you want to do commercially and and that puts the investors money I suppose at risk and I, I think it's not necessarily, uh, I, you know, I I I don't know many companies that I work for who have kind of started at the scientist founder stage who necessarily have both these things completely bolted down. There, it's a it's an ongoing ongoing yeah. thing to consider, isn't it? And but just an understanding of the distinction between patentability and green to operate FDO FDO. Yeah. Is 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 important? Just just that that is a yeah, I agree. It's a it's a very common misconception. Yeah.
1: And and just because you might not have freedom to operate does not mean that you can't get a patent within that space. Yes. If you, in biotech think about the fundamental patents that cover PCR. There have been so many other patents within that space to new arrangements of oligonucleotides and things like that. So those new PCR methods are patentable. But they perhaps wouldn't have freedom to operate in view of the original PCR patent. I think sometimes you can use patents that you don't necessarily have freedom to operate with uh, for to use for cross licensing with the people that mm. do have the other patents. So you know, there's lots of strategy involved in um, what you try to protect and what you don't. No, try to
0: protect. I, I no, I completely agree. And you mentioned licensing earlier as well, and I think it's quite important to always be aware that that's a a weapon in your arsenal um, when you're negotiating with others. Um, just because on the face of it you might not have freedom to operate that doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't a commercial agreement that you can come to with the other owner of the IP right generally people want to see their own business flourish and their own technology take off and, and and having these commercial discussions obviously it's case specific but it's not uncommon common just you know so so having a freedom to operate issue is obviously a risk to a business but it doesn't necessarily mean that that risk has got to be fatal i think that yeah that that no that that's i think that's a a good 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 basis to build on um so say you're sort of you know chatting to a scientist founder and you're trying to outline the types of ip Based sort of knowledge is what knowledge what points do you think it's important for them to look out for you know what 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 I don't like to say basic knowledge that sounds a bit derogatory but do you know I mean what basic knowledge yeah. is it for them to have
1: so I think one key thing and just this is again going back to my time when I was in academia if I did think about patents I always thought an invention has to be like so amazing and groundbreaking and I don't know far from what I was doing in the lab but in reality for a patent to be granted it's got to be new and inventive so the novelty just means it's got to be different from everything that's out there. And that do, that difference can be so small, it could be one amino acid change or a different concentration or a different temperature. So when, when you're looking at your invention or what you're doing in the lab, try not to dismiss it just because you don't think it's like going to blow people away. Because a lot of inventions are just minor or relatively minor incremental changes on things that are out there or new combinations of things. Um, so I think one, one thing to be aware of is don't dismiss something just because you don't you know it's not going to make an itch paper
0: well exactly yeah the the legal test is will it be pu- isn't will it be published in nature i think like you say yeah. if if there's a difference then you know if it's clearly been disclosed before from not from a novelty perspective then you're going to struggle and um so i think that that's key but if there's any difference it's it's a discussion with your ip advisor as to you know will that difference potentially be considered inventive and i think my yeah. view is if it's arbitrary and it's just sort of just just it doesn't have any technical reason behind it it's simply just to d- sort of distinguish from what's gone before then you might struggle but if if that one amino acid difference that you know change in temperature has a has a technical reason behind it and associated with a technical advantage then yeah i think that's that's that could be the basis of you know an invention for which p- patents could be granted yes. like you say hmm. the patent office aren't all Nobel laureates you know and and I think uh the people we generally work with are, are a lot cleverer than 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 you know needed to to make this assessment it, yeah the, the bar's a lot lower isn't it and yeah
1: so that's that's another thing like the 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 legal test for um inventive step is from the perspective of what we call the skilled person so the skilled person is not really um a PhD student or a postdoc working in the lab whose main job is to find out new things a skilled person is somebody who can follow instructions, can read one protocol, and if that protocol says go and look at another protocol, they can go and do that, but they won't think outside the box and they won't put two and two together and come up with five. So if so, so that's just to say that like, if something is obvious to you, it's not necessarily obvious from the legal patent side.
0: That makes sense. So I think it's essentially not to do not to almost self-screen to dismiss yeah. your work as being
1: anyone
0: could do it well yeah to yeah yeah just you know take a step back and you know have a ha, and I think that I think that's key it's kind of I guess we'd call it invention spotting and you know when yeah. you're when you're um, embarking on a a research project just to make sure that everyone involved sort of knows what to look out for know knows that it doesn't have to be a groundbreaking discovery to 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 you know make you take a step back and go well could this be could this be the source of intellectual property obviously yeah. it's got to commercially support what you want to do but if it does then there's definitely a conversation to be had there and I think
1: yeah.
0: sort of talking around that kind of invention spotting and sort of slotting it into almost research progress uh, processes you, you you sort of talked about the the importance of novelty and um the invention not being disclosed obviously that that includes anything that's publicly disclosed which the you know the the inventors, the scientist founders own own publications count for that, don't they? Yeah, is that that's something that you sometimes come across? This is something
1: that's quite a, a big problem uh, when we're working with academic institutes because um, either the academics don't just don't know that their own publications are prior art, so they published something a year ago, and then your invention has has to be new and inventive in view of that publication. So because there's obviously a pressure from in from a, for academics to publish we understand that and it is possible to patent something and then publish it pretty much straight away um it's important you don't publish it before and this is definitely a common mistake that we see even though we try and the tech transfer officers try it somehow quite often slips through the net that academics will publish their research even while we're drafting a patent application Mm. so it's it's sometimes even just a day or two too early (laughs)
0: Yeah, and I well, and that day can be can be critical. Obviously, yeah. some countries are um, have grace periods where the inventor's own disclosures can't be used by patent office for um, for for sort of attacking the novelty or inventive step. But they're few and far between, so you'll struggle yeah. maybe to 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 get patent protection where you'd want if you if you even publish a day before. And I'm sort of seeing an increasing amount of. Um, particularly with kind of COVID-related um, research that uh, you you kind of used to in the academic world submitting a paper and it's sitting on a reviewer's desk yeah. for a few weeks and months but as soon as you submit it it's out of your control and with these COVID-related sort of research projects a lot of unpeer-reviewed data and paper yeah. manuscripts are being published so just because you submit something I don't think it necessarily means that it won't be made public straight away yes definitely i think you know my position would always be get a patent application on file even before you publish your manuscript just just out of an abundance of caution because as, as you say it can be critical if you if you miss that and now we're talking about scientific manuscripts here but you know obviously any kind of public disclosure can can count against you can't it
1: yeah so that's so for, for academics that includes poster presentations um, conference presentations or presentations and quite often when you submit um, a request to do an oral, pre- oral presentation you'll submit an abstract and they, they quite often get published online before the conference so you know just be it is possible to d- talk about your invention and talk about your work in an interesting way without giving away the key parts quite often So we did this for one client who was, they suddenly realised they were presenting at a conference a couple of months ago and um, spoke to us and we quickly just like worked out what the inventive and the clever bit is. And then they just didn't talk about that. And they did a really good talk for 20 minutes and they just didn't talk about the key part. So, you know, it's still possible to come in with your academic lifestyle and protect what you need to protect.
0: I think that's key. Like you said earlier, you can protect and you can publish. It's just about making sure you know just getting your ducks in a line early on and and uh, there's no reason why these two things aren't, aren't aren't mutually exclusive so i think we've talked a bit about you know invention spotting and yes. the importance of making sure you file a patent application before you publish your own work i think one thing that's often a bit of a challenge for you know, these sorts of companies that i work with is making a decision when to file based on the data they have and how much data you need for a patent application and and what you can do in order to improve the quality of the patent application and to try and you know increase the likelihood of getting broad claims to protect your invention is that something you come across
1: yeah definitely so the sooner you file a patent application the better in terms of getting an early filing date so if you file an application today and then joe blogs down the road publishes something tomorrow that's not citable against you but if you leave it another month then it would be so but as well as being new and inventive your your patent application has to be supported by data so Mm. if you're claiming a certain effect you've got to have data to back it up and it's in Europe it's got to be at least plausible so if you're talking about medical things it doesn't necessarily have to be mouse models or definitely doesn't have to be clinical trials but as long as you've got some data to show a mechanism that can be plausibly extrapolated to what you're wanting to protect that can be enough um the quality of data does not have to be at all anything like what you would normally submit in a manuscript you know if you've got a wonky gel that's fine Um, but the more data you can include in a patent application the better especially to cover off variations so say your say your main research project is i don't know using a particular yeast and you find a a useful effect in this particular yeast but really I think it could work in lots of different yeast so if you could do a few probably simple experiments to show that the same effect happens in different yeast that's good if it could work in bacteria throwing some bacteria so a lot of these things I think in practice if you plan ahead you can do them all at the same time
0: Mm, so it doesn't
1: have to necessarily add too much burden to your research project just to kind of I don't know. In my head, I'm picturing some like sort of sideways data. It's not really progressing your research forward, but it's broadening it sideways. Um, so all that kind of additional data is really useful for us.
0: That yeah, that that I, I completely agree with that. And it is all just about forward planning. And I yeah. think if that can be managed managed at the beginning of a project, then that can work. And I suppose if you have a view of where your your invention might be commercialized, and as well as sort of you, Showing that it just works in general terms, if you can provide this sideways data, I love that phrase, sideways <laughs> data, to 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 show that it kind of works within areas, in particular where you think there'd be sort of commercially important embodiments yeah. um, of yeah. or your your innovation, then that that can be super valuable.
1: And- Definitely, because the whole point of having a patent is to get it as broad as possible. Because you don't want to, you don't really want to only have a patent that protects your specific product if there's then an easy workaround. So I go ahead and commercialize my particular yeast species, but so and so down the road, oh, I can uh, use a different yeast species and get around your patent. Yeah, that's not that's not what we want for our clients. We want good, strong, broad protection. But also, I think you touched on it earlier about it being commercially useful. Just because you could patent something doesn't always mean that you should and there will probably be lots of things you come across that you could patent but don't really support what you're trying to do Mm -hmm. so that's where you need I don't know to make sure when you're seeking patent protection because presumably as a founder you don't have tons of cash and it is expensive you do it in a strategic way to protect the things that you need and don't waste your money on the things that you don't need
0: yeah, that makes sense because I think it's 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 really important to separate out the patenting process from a purely like academic. Well, how broader claims can we feasibly get if we, yeah, you know, fight tooth and nail with the patent office examiner and yeah, you know, maybe unnecessarily spend money. You, you could you could get broader claims, but if they don't provide any commercially important scope, as in you know they're they're miles away from what you're doing commercially or what other people might want to do commercially, then maybe it's yeah. a battle that that doesn't need to be that doesn't need to happen and um as probably is too in depth for this kind of like high level chat but there's always strategies often at patent offices where you can get a granted patent and then file sort of follow on often called yeah. divisional or continue continuation applications which essentially reserve your right to go back later and get different scopes of claims or broader scopes of claims which which can be a good way of balancing out that that kind of commercial or it's great to get a granted patent to show to investors and then keep the door open so if someone wants to invest or take on the IP then they can they can mold it in the direction they want to stuff like that can be quite a good quite a good tool tool to support (laughs) a a company (laughs) commercially but that's that sort of maybe part two of any kind of like IP <laughs> education um, yeah. discussion. That makes sense. And I think one thing that we've talked about um, primarily patents and, you know, being in the biotech field, then that makes sense because I guess patents do protect technical inventions and most biotech innovations are technical in nature, but it's always worth, as a, I guess, as a, as a, as a, as a Scientist found and knowing that there are other types of IP intellectual property out there, you know, which ones yes. do you sort of commonly come across as 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 being ones that might be of general use to to,
1: to so I think um, depending on your business and are you business facing or customer facing, trademarks and branding can be very important, especially one thing I'm thinking of at the minute is like then I do some work with some cultured meat companies and there's alternative protein companies. And they all have really strong branding. I think it's important if you're in that kind of company to get your good branding and get it recognized amongst your customers early on. So, so branding, would be thinking about trademark protection, um, yeah. which protects like logos, your color schemes, all that kind of stuff. For products, there is also design protection, which protects how things look. So it's like the shape and appearance rather than any technical clever bits. Um, so I think a lot of medical devices might have got design protection around them. Mm, yeah. One that I think complements gotcha. patents really well is trade secrets. So before you file a patent application, hopefully your information is confidential. So you've got confidential information. And then you also have some confidential information that can be considered to be a trade secret. Um, and then everybody always refers to the Coca-Cola recipe for trade secrets. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the UK, the trade secret protection is pretty strong. Um, But for your confidential information to be considered a trade secret under the law, it's not a case of just keeping it secret. There are certain steps you've got to take and procedures you've got to put in place. So that's definitely something worth looking at. And I think. So a lot of companies perhaps have a method or internal processes. So if you're if you're a company that's identifying new drugs or screening for certain types of strains, you quite often the the method and the process processes you've got you would probably keep as a trade secret rather than patent because once you patent it it's got it's made public and then everyone can see how you're doing it whereas depending on how many people you've got coming in and leaving the company and the risk of trade secrets getting out you might prefer to keep these method type things a trade secret and then protect the outcomes that the the new drugs or the new strains with patents Um, so i think trade secrets and patents go well quite well together
0: Yeah, I agree. They kind of, they they lock together to try and sort of almost provide all round protection for for particularly an innovative company that is continuing to to actively research. And I think it's it's worth noting as well that trade secrets, it's largely to do with internal processes. And while these should always be revisited, I guess, it's if they are set up and robust from the start, okay, there might be some some cost associated with advice surrounding that, but then hopefully they should be largely self sustaining and I think yeah. it makes sense to 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 make sure that um that those those sort of things are sorted out early doors to avoid any problems down the line and yeah, um, uh, yeah no, I completely agree with what you're saying about trademarks, particularly with brand um brand heavy heavy kind of um companies and I guess one thing as well that trademarks you probably have a view on this too that I I find quite interesting is often people look at patents and like you mentioned earlier yeah there's no two ways about it you know the patenting process even though the costs are spread over usually a, a large number of years they can add up but trademarks I think generally are cheaper yeah so I guess it's always it's it's not just I always say it's like a like a wedding. Everything seems to cost like a thousand pounds, regardless of what it is. each, yeah. each, each thing is a thousand pounds. Um, it's just a unit. But with th- these different types of IP, it's it's not like you'll be shelling out the same amount for every type of protection. Yeah, and there are. Um, it's, uh, often at the start of any company, then then money is going to be tight. But there are ways in which the business plan can be aligned with the IP strategy in order for the funding to to kind yeah. of. To, to yeah i think it all
1: fits even like like a marketing strategy as well i'm thinking of like all the, the companies that that is making brewed proteins and artificial fibers they they're a lot of those are partnering with big brands like north face and they're getting out there early getting their name and their trademark associated with these big companies and perhaps not everybody has heard of them yet but i certainly have heard of a lot of them just because i'm kind of in the field i suppose but yeah, yeah they're starting to become household names like beyond meat in the meat
0: I think I saw a TV advert for them the other day.
1: Yeah, the I think it's that the one that McDonald's are using.
0: I yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it was
1: very
0: nice. Was it? Yeah. Did it taste? Did it taste like an actual burger? I've never had any any of these sort of meat substitutes.
1: Well, I, so I was I've been vegetarian for two lots of three years in the past, and I have started being vegetarian again since Christmas, and I can't believe how many new alternative meat substitute type things are on the market, and that's like one thing that annoys me a bit I guess is the regulations we have in the UK and Europe where we haven't got the cultured meats on the shelves yet but I'm hoping that one day soon we will do because I'm quite desperate to try them but there is already so many good things out there which weren't there a few years ago
0: yeah definitely seems to be taking up and and I guess it's it's it is yeah it's reaching the mainstream you know when you see a TV advert and I, I guess that's once it reaches the mainstream then it then hopefully hopefully it can kind of it can it can make a bit more of an impact on society yeah um now all that a good aside um i think one last thing that it might be worth chatting about just to kind of push towards wrapping wrapping up this conversation is the importance of ip to um early stage companies which um don't have many tangible assets and i think this probably comes down to helping these these um, scientists founders understand whether it is a good investment at the start of the company to spend money on IP as opposed to sort of other elements because you know often decisions have to be made as to as to well you know do we get this bit of equipment or do we file this patent application Yeah, it's it's not like everything can be done have you got a view on a view on that well I can imagine what the view is but um, (laughs) but but you know I argue the case for IP in this situation so I
1: think yeah, it's, it's very difficult because so IP is relatively expensive when you're starting out and you haven't got much cash. But if you think about, A, what it's going to bring you to start off with, so it gives you something. I know we talk about IP as being kind of more intangible, but it's more tangible than having nothing. It's an mm, IP, yes. you've got an application, you might have got something about your grant. It's something you can wave in front of investors. And if you've got a written down IP strategy, for example, like we can work with you to come up with an IP strategy that's in a written form that you can show to investors and show you, you are caring about your IP and know what you're doing because like I said at the start what so say you say you've left the lab and you've decided to set up a science company what have you got you haven't got any premises you probably get got a couple of pipettes and you're borrowing centrifuges off somebody else yeah yeah. Um, you might not have got any staff you're working on your own you're going to need money from somewhere and the way that you raise money is by talking to investors, telling them them about your brilliant idea and showing them that you've got IP that is or will support your business going forward. So you need that. And then think even like the company, so one of our clients recently got uh, acquired by somebody for, I can't remember how many billions of dollars it was. And if you think about that company, yeah, they've got staff, but the key part of what made them so valuable is their IP rights to Mm. a certain type of antibody or whatever it was. So although at the start, you think it's, oh, God, it's a lot of money to spend on something that, you you know, it's not like buying a new car that you can see. Yeah, it's a good investment and you need it. And you need uh, another thing I'll just say now is that not all patent applications are equal. And this no. is something that we find quite a lot. Um, you can pay for a cheap and nasty application and you'll get a cheap and nasty application, which might serve your purpose in the short term, but long term, um, we do, for example, we do due diligence on behalf of investors who are wanting to, or thinking about investing in a company. And sometimes the IP just does not cover or will not be able to cover what it needs to cover. Um, So you need to make sure if you're spending your money early on, you're spending it on attorneys that really understand your invention and are understanding of the commercial aims so they know what you need to get from this long term.
0: I think so, uh, because I guess... The key point that comes out of what you've said is the i p will live with basically for the you know for the the lifetime of your more or less the well more or less the lifetime of your idea in in one form or another, so any investment will probably be based on the i p rather than the fact that you've got lab space or any anything yeah like that's that going to change. Yeah. and you know and and without the IP there anyone investing or, or looking to help you develop your your idea they just don't have any certainty that their money would be safe from others copying it and, and essentially undercutting you yeah No that no, that that's no, that's great so I think that's that's not a bad overview of you know what a scientist founder should be looking out for from the ip perspective but what three points say should a listener take home from from the discussion we've had
1: so i suppose one for the perhaps person who's still in academia thinking oh i've got this really good idea and somebody somewhere will turn it into a product that's going to cure cancer they won't do that if you're just going to publish it you need to think about protecting your ips you need to go and talk to a patent, your tech transfer office and at least if you decide to publish without filing an application make it a considered decision it's not just something you've just done and then regret later Another point, once you've set set up your business and you say it's just, say it's you and you've got a couple of scientists working with you um, and you've got some other people in the firm, make sure they all know at least the basics of, they need to know the basics of patent protection. So the people on the front line who are doing that for research know the kind of things to look out for and make sure they know your overall business plan and the kind of things you want them to look out for. I also think it's useful for them to know who your competitors are because... To my mind, if you come up with an invention that can, and this is not, well, this is just business So, If you come up with an invention that can screw over one of your competitors yeah. then it's something you want to think about.
0: Yeah, that um, makes sense.
1: So yeah, so it's not, just, it's not just you as the founder who will be leading the company. It's everybody needs to have some aware. And then especially when we get to things like trade secrets, there are certain people that need to know what is a trade secret so they don't go and tell somebody else. Yeah. No, and then definitely. another point is, When you do engage a patent attorney, which, you know, it's never too early to talk to somebody. We are here to look after you. And we know that early on, you, A, perhaps don't know much about IP. B, you've got no time because you're doing 500 million other things. You might not think that you know enough about IP or the commercial side of things to make the decisions about IP. We're there to help you with all that. And I think for me, it helps to have regular meetings with your IP advisor because we are the ones that can invention spot. if you come and tell us, oh, would found this really good, or the research in this area is going really well, we've got this data, we will be able to say whether you sh- we think you should try and protect that or not, or wait, because you've not got enough data, or file it now, because you're going to get data in a few months' time, which we can then add to the application. So there's lots of things like that that I think you benefit from, from having relatively r- regular meetings with your uh, IP advisor. Rather-, rather than you coming to us when you think you've got something, we can tell you when... We think you've got
0: something. You no, know, I find that those almost those chats on the periphery of other meetings where you kind of something that seems incidental gets said about a commercial yeah, goal or a competitor or this, that and the other, they're often the most valuable points, the things that no one no one really thought was important till it was said yeah. out loud. Yeah, um, always. And just to, to tie up two and three, I think it's worth emphasising as well that your IP journey doesn't stop with necessarily with the first patent application you file, different inventions can come along along the line and that can be important because generally a patent um, has a 20 year um, patent term um, after which anyone can essentially copy your invention. But if you refile or well, if you file a, a, a second or third or fourth patent application to your technology, that essentially resets the 20 year clock. For whatever yeah. it manages to claim, which can be important, and, and sort of letting your patent strategy evolve with your company um, can help its longevity and make it a bit more, you know, interesting. I think to to yeah. investors, and so I think that's you know where points two and three, IP education and, and working closely with your advisor, um, it, it, they they are key, and that they kind of tie together just just to help help revisiting what. What innovations going on within your company and, and what IP, if any, can come out with it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because like thinking, thinking of a longer term plan. We need to know what you're planning on doing in a year two, three years time science wise, because that will inform whether or not we try and include certain things in an earlier filing or not, or whether we don't mention them so we can protect them later once you've got data. It's a sometimes it's a toss up between cramming a lot of things into an early application knowing that you're probably not going to get the data, but then it kind of burns the field for the people because then your yeah. application becomes prior off competitors or holding some things back because you know you're probably going to get some data on it and we'll file that separately
0: and Yeah, that, that can reset the clock and that can be super valuable. You know, sometimes a, an extra year, even an extra few days can be very valuable if you've got an extra, oh, yeah. extra bit of patent term. Yeah. No, no that, was, that was a great chat, Sarah. Thank you very much. And um, yeah. I hope you enjoyed listening. Thanks for your time. Uh, other information about Potter Clarkson can be found at www.potterclarkson.com and this podcast and others can be found on Spotify, YouTube or SoundCloud. Thanks again for listening. Take care.